Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks as well as drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com/toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all that stuff that's more important than you might think. We've got boot camps running every single month here in California. Details at theartofcharm.com, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Enjoy. All right, I'd love to start this one off with an iTunes review of the week. This one comes from the Canada Music Store from London Kiwi Tim. I'm a big fan of this show since AJ and Jordan are excellent at providing useful and practical information in a humorous and fun way. They have a great selection of guest speakers, and listening to the show makes me feel positive and motivated about going out and being social. I've been listening to these guys since they first started out and always looking forward to new episodes when they come out. Well, we are glad to have you as a fan, and today we have a great show as well, speaking of great guests, because we're here with my friend James Clear. He's an awesome dude, weightlifter, travel photographer, etc., and not to mention personal growth badass. We're going to talk about why habit is more important than goals and outcomes why you're building habits every single day, both good and bad, whether you want to or not, how he met Richard Branson and how Richard Branson advises us to keep it simple, and how failure is actually the cost you pay to be right. So we're gonna treat failure like a scientist and avoid a lot of that inaction that's caused by fear of failure. We're gonna talk about the benefits of a low information diet and how our language affects our behavior. Enjoy this episode with my friend James Clear. It's a good one, guys. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't like to introduce people because all it does is end up with me like looking at their bio and reading it or picking things out of it, which I think is an amateur rookie mistake that a lot of show hosts make. So I'm just going to let you introduce yourself and tell us the important stuff. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. I often introduce myself or, you know, have a list on my website as like I'm an entrepreneur, weightlifter and travel photographer. So those are sort of the three areas that I think about or that I spend most of my time working on. With regards to those topics, I often write about them. And the central thread or theme that ties all of them together is habit formation and behavioral psychology and sort of this idea of 
how we can use our habits to master our mindset and our, our mental and physical performance. And so every Monday and Thursday, I write about those topics on jamesclear.com. And then I publish photo essays from, you know, whatever country I'm traveling to or taking photos of um, every month or so. So that's uh, usually where you can find my stuff and what I spend most of my time working on. That's excellent. So are you traveling full time? No, no. I prefer to have a base where I live for, you know, 40, 45 weeks out of the year. So this ties actually together some of those things. So for weightlifting, I, my training schedules or training blocks are typically like eight to 12 weeks long. And then once I get to the end of that block, I usually go on a trip for one to two weeks where it's pretty much just like photography focused. So as an example, um, my last training block ended in the beginning of February. And then I spent the first two weeks of February in Morocco. I was doing pretty much just photography work while I was there. I got back and then like I published a photo essay a couple weeks later. I just put up another one last week. And then when this next training block finishes, um, which should be sometime in like late April, I'll go on another trip again. Are you essentially then resting physically at that point or travel's not like resting? It's not restful generally. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It is like active rest. And I'm because I'm going around taking so many pictures, there's a lot of like walking and hiking. I do mostly street photography and landscapes. So it is like an active form of rest. But I had this struggle for a long time where I was like trying to figure out how I could work out on the road. And that was a real hassle. You know, like I, I flew to Russia after like a 15 hour flight and got off and did this bodyweight workout in the hotel room before I crashed. And you know, I got to another place and I would be running sprints in the uh, parking lot and it, it was fine. Like it was better than nothing, but it definitely wasn't working out that well. So this is much better for me. And, and, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but I have enough flexibility where I can plan those breaks and sort of match it up so that it works really well where I have like during my off week or my off week and a half, I can just be walking around and sort of have active rest rather than trying to fit something in doing too much at once. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense because I was going to say, man, I can barely find the ability to work out. Whenever I'm traveling, all that stuff just goes to shit. I try to be disciplined with the food that I eat, but trying to find a gym in like North Korea is literally impossible. <laughs> yeah, well, North Korea would put you to work anyway. I'm sure they'd figure out a yeah, way. Yeah, I'll just go break rocks with uh, those people in gulags and then right. ask, and hopefully they'll let me leave after I'm feeling worked out. Yeah, you'll be working out for the rest of your life. Yeah, 12 years of working out. I think the diet portion, unfortunately, is not quite in place over there. And and so what you talk about a lot on your blog, which I've read a bunch of, is about habits and routines driving our life, business, health, productivity. It all really comes down to the routines and patterns that you follow every day. And so you talk a lot about, and what I want to discuss here is understanding the science of how these things work and translate that stuff into simple actionable strategies, because I think a lot of people spend a lot of time, they're like, I have an amazing diet, an amazing plan for all this stuff. And I'm like, cool, but how's that working out? Oh, I haven't really actually done it yet, because a lot of times it's overwhelming or because they don't have the willpower to actually do it. So they don't make any real progress in the areas that is important to them. Obviously, that defeats the whole purpose of creating these actionable strategies in the first place. Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I write about this too. I struggle with this just like everybody else. Like I've figured a lot out and made a lot of progress, but um, I still very much am like battling all these same things. And so I, I see this every day. And one of the conclusions that I came to is that like a lot of times we set these goals for ourselves or you just mentioned, you know, like a plan that we have, like, hey, here's my diet plan that I'm going to follow or I'm going to do this workout program or here's my plan for my business and I want to launch this thing on the side. I'm going to work on it, you know, two hours a week every night and then, you know, I'm going to do it on the weekends or whatever. 
And we come up with like this whole framework and of all the goals that we want to achieve. But really, if you just have a sense of direction, like, okay, I would like to get in shape. That's all you really need. You don't need to like predict the outcome or anything else. The only thing you really need to focus on is the system. So like, I wrote an article about this, the difference between goals and systems. So one that makes a good example is like athletics. So, you know, if you're Nick Saban, you're coaching the Alabama football team, they want to win the national title. They all know that's their goal. It's very clear what they're working toward. But if they forgot about that entirely and focused only on the system, which is like what they do at practice every day, would they still make progress? And I think that they would. And I've seen this in my own life as well. You know, like for a long time, I tried to predict the weights that I would hit in the gym or the grades that I would get in school or the progress I would make in my business. And at the end of the day, it didn't really matter what I predicted. It was came down to like, what was I doing on a daily basis? What type of system was I setting up? And so now I focus just on that system or on those habits. What are my routines that I'm doing each week? How can I build in feedback loops that give me some input on whether I'm doing the right things or the wrong things? And then how can I adjust as needed? as I go on. Absolutely. Uh, let's get some of that for sure. One of the things that you'd written about that I really liked was improving by 1% each day. And this goes a little bit with what you had just mentioned. You either improve by 1% each day or you could. And you can also build bad habits by getting worse each day, whether you get better or worse at pretty much everything in your life is essentially the result of a set of choices. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that. You know, they think, oh, well, you know, I'm working on good habits. And then when they take a couple of days off, they're like, yeah, I didn't work on my good habits anymore. But instead, what they don't realize is that they've actually started building a habit that's bad, a laziness habit or a habit of procrastination or a habit of breaking their strategies or breaking their plans. You just think about it as not doing good stuff. You don't think about it as building a bad habit at the same time. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of times, you know, laziness or doing nothing, it's not benign, right? Like there, there's a cost to that. And uh, those losses can add up just as easily as the tiny gains. And uh, honestly, this is how like when people say, Oh, I don't know how I got a bad habit, or I have this bad habit, I can't break it. It's very rare that a bad habit or a good habit will happen like in some transformation overnight, you know, the media loves to focus on these transformations, like, you'll see the biggest loser headlines where it's like guy lost a hundred pounds in 12 weeks or something like that, which is, you know, everybody wants to focus on the transformation, but it's actually the daily habits and all those tiny choices that added up to that. You're never going to see a headline that says man eats broccoli and chicken for lunch, but it was choosing to do that like a hundred times along with many other tiny things that led to the big result. And it's the same way for the negative things. It's like, I'm in a job that I don't like. Well, you know, you chose over and over and over again in many different tiny ways, things that led you to that point. It wasn't like you just stumbled into something that you hated one day. So I think that you're right. Those gains and losses add up in, a, in an interesting way. There's a lot of power in small wins and slow gains, speaking of systems. And you'd mentioned on your blog, and I thought this was like subtle genius. This is why average speed yields above average results and why the system is greater than the goal. And so this is why mastering your habits is more important than achieving a certain outcome. Tell us why average speed yields above average results. That's counterintuitive. Yeah, so I have a friend named Nathan Barry who wrote three books in like 10 months, and he did it by just writing a 1,000 words each day. And a 1,000 words is not really that much. No. It's like maybe a little more than two pages. You could probably do it in you know 20 to 40 minutes, depending on how fast you write. Yeah. And so at no point, during that time, would you have said, oh, wow, he's working so much harder than everybody else? Because he wasn't really. But it was simply by adding up that consistency of never missing a day. He did it for like 
259 straight days or something. And then at the end, he had three books that were written. And those three books have gone on to do very well for him. I think he's made it well over $300,000 from those at this point. And it was just the consistency that made the difference. His A lot of times when you think about someone writing a book, you think about, oh, they're holed up in like a cabin in the woods and they're, you know, just pounding out writing for 20 hours a day. And, you know, like you have to be so focused to get this project done. And that's how a lot of us treat big projects. It's like, okay, I have to shut down everything else in my life so I can just focus on this. You hear about entrepreneurs doing that a lot where they're like burning the midnight oil to do some product launch or whatever. Um, And so in that case, their maximum speed is real high, but you can only maintain that for what, a day, a week? I mean, not that long. And Nathan instead was just like, I'll just stick with this average speed. I'll just do a thousand words a day, every day. And after 259 days, I have this amazing result. That's a lot of writing. I know I'm good friends with Neil Strauss. He's a writer for those of you guys who don't know. And I mean, he is a hard man to reach even for his friends. And six days a week are totally blocked off. Writing only, no media, nothing except for on Sunday nights. He's got like a social time scheduled in. He's got assistance for personal stuff and assistance for business stuff. It's really interesting because I often do wonder, I know he doesn't have his phone around and stuff, and I know he doesn't sit there on Twitter, but I do wonder how he writes the way he does versus guys who write three books in 10 months. Well, and it also depends on like, you know, what kind of book you're writing. You know, Neil may be putting in a lot of research. I think he's doing a lot of research. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it may take much longer for that particular book. Obviously, depending on the book, it can take a different amount of time. But I think the principle is sound and it applies to many things outside of writing as well. Like I see the same thing with weightlifting. For a while, I trained on this Olympic weightlifting team in Columbus and I wasn't that great, but we had a lot of lifters who were really good. Our best female lifter, Holly Mangold, went to the Olympics and lifted in London in 2012. Just training with like an Olympian, seeing what that was like every week. How do they they approach things? What do they do differently than most people? There are all sorts of things that like impact the growth that you'll have in the gym. But I was talking to a coach one day and I was asking about this. I was like, hey, if you look at the top performers, the people who are the best of the best, what do they do differently? Like he mentioned genetics and nutrition and all the normal things you would think. But then he said something I thought was really interesting. He was like, at some point, it just comes down to who can handle the boredom of doing the same lifts over and over again. Yeah, totally. And man. so it's just like, who can show up and be more consistent? I mean, even for the people who are the top 10 in the in the country in their weight class, it comes down to whether or not they're showing up every week. Yeah. So that average speed principle is very powerful and works in a lot of different areas. That makes a lot of sense, although it doesn't necessarily explain why mastering your habits is more important than achieving a certain outcome. What's that all about? Here's one way to look at it. A lot of times when you ask people what they would like to do, you know, for example, weight loss is like a really popular goal. So you ask them, hey, you know, what do you want to achieve or whatever? And someone will be like, oh, you need to have a smart goal, something that's like specific and measurable and actionable and all this stuff. So they'll say things like, all right, I want to lose 20 pounds in the next four months or something like that. And you get to the end of the four months. And if you lose like 12 pounds, you end up feeling like a failure because you didn't hit this arbitrary goal that you set in the beginning, which you were being honest, completely made up. You weren't basing on anything, just on like where you would like to be. The problem with that, with the prediction of the outcome, is a few things. One, it teaches you that like success and happiness is like always in the distant future. Once I lose 20 pounds, then I'll be happy. Once I achieve this milestone, then I'll be successful. Once I reach XYZ goal, then I'll be happy with who I am. And after a while, you start to think that like you can't be happy with who you are right now because you got to achieve the next thing or the next milestone in order to reach that. The other thing that's interesting about this whole like predicting the outcome thing or focusing on the outcome or the the goal is that 
take, for example, someone who's looking to get into running. A lot of times they'll say something like, all right, I want to finish this half marathon or run this marathon. And they use that as like their driver for training. And so they train, train, train for months, and then they run the half marathon and they get done. And it's like, oh, well, now there's nothing pushing me forward anymore because that was what I was training for. So they're like, all right, I'll take a little break or whatever. And then all of a sudden they turn around two months later and like, wow, I got to get like back on. I need to sign for another race or something. So there's like this yo-yo effect where you are training for something, you reach a goal, then you don't have anything propelling you forward anymore. You just fall back. So you go back and forth and it's hard to make consistent long-term progress. The opposite of that is someone who could be another runner who runs that half marathon, but they're not necessarily doing it because they want to finish the half marathon. They're just doing it because they're a runner. It's like their identity. It's what they believe about themselves. Right. And so a really powerful place to get, whether you're an entrepreneur or looking to get in shape or looking to be more productive and be procrastination, whatever, is the point where you believe that about yourself, where it's just part of your identity. And the only way that I know to get to that point is to do many tiny things consistently over and over and over again. So that's the mastering your habits piece and why it's like so powerful for long-term progress. As an example, I just got back from the gym about an hour ago and I lift every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And it's not like really even a decision for me. Like I don't have to debate or wonder when I wake up in the morning, hey, am I going to be motivated to go to the gym? But it wasn't always like that. It's like that for me now because I stuck to that schedule in so many different little ways that every time I showed up and went on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, it was an indication of the type of things I believed about myself, the type of identity that I had. And then eventually it became who I was. And it's like, I just go because that's what I do on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's who I am. And that's a much more powerful place to be than... I need to work out or like run so I can finish this race or I'm hoping I'll have the motivation when I wake up today to work on my business or to lose weight or whatever. Yeah, you're touching on something that's at the core of what we teach at The Art of Charm, which is that your mindset determines your beliefs, which determine your outcome slash results. So it's all about who you're being and not about necessarily what you're doing because you can always try to modify your behaviors by force and go, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, and then hope that you follow through with them and get the results, or you essentially change your beliefs slash, like you said, who you're being, and then your beliefs, of course, be a result of that, and your your results will be a result of that directly. Yeah, I would almost compare it as like a surface-level change versus like a deeper, more higher-level change or like a core identity shift, you know? Like Mm -hmm. if you just try to change the surface-level stuff, which is the outcome that you have or the appearance that you have, then you're not actually changing who you are or what you believe about yourself underneath. And so those things might drive you forward for a little while, but it's by using your actions and consistency to drive new beliefs about yourself that you actually get to a more powerful place. Yeah, people try to do it all the time. And if you don't believe me or you need an example, look at our girl who gets fake boobs and see if she goes, well, that solved my confidence problem and everything's okay after that. How many people do you know like that, right? Mm. Plenty of girls get fake boobs and then they go and get fake lips and they go and they get fake tan and they go, there's obviously an underlying belief that's not changed by new boobs. And us guys, we have the exact same thing. I'm going to be awesome. When I get this money, I'm going to get this car, and then I'm going to get all the girls. What do you see? Tons of D-bags with tons of money and tons of cool cars and usually no chicks or chicks that like their cars and not them. And then when you go up and you talk to them at the bar, wherever you happen to be, the girls are interested in you. The guy gets really mad, right? (laughs) Because he's still the same guy. He's still a nerd or, uh, you know, what he believes to be a loser underneath all of that. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. All right, let's get back to the show. The identity piece is hard, right? Like it's tough to shift and believe new things about yourself. And that's why I think the habits and the consistency are so important because it is tough to like get out of that place, which is why people default to all the easier things like buying a car or whatever. Nobody's going to argue it's easy. It's definitely not that easy to go out, earn enough money to buy a Ferrari, right? But people would rather do that than change their beliefs because that's even easier to, (laughs) to put that in perspective. Yeah, it's true. But you can absolutely do it through the consistency thing. Here's another example. So I recently talked to a reader who lost about 100 pounds, took him a little over a year. And in the beginning, when he was introducing exercise into his routine, he did something that I thought was pretty interesting. He forced himself. He's like, all right, I'm going to go to the gym and work out, but I'm not allowed to stay for more than five minutes. And so he did that for like the first six weeks. He would show up at the gym every day and couldn't stay there for longer than five minutes. And after that time, he was like, I'm coming here all the time. I kind of feel like staying longer. So what he did was he built the habit of consistency first. He focused on the volume first, on maintaining that level of consistency. And then once he had that, then he focused on like the intensity or the outcome. It was like, all right, now I'm going to be here. Let's make sure I'm using my time right. I built that identity first where I was like, I believe that I'm the type of person who's going to be at the gym all the time because I've just proven it to myself that I'll show up. So now I'll start thinking about the outcome. I've used this on, I've used my own psychology against myself all the time. In fact, I saw something like this similar on your website as well. I started years and years ago. I was like, oh, I see this couch to 5k running plan. My friend is doing, maybe I should do it too. So I started running and I was like, this blows. And then I did it like once a week, maybe for a couple months. And he's like, this running thing is really great. I really love it. And eventually I was like, fine. So I went out and got comfortable running shoes because before I was running in like 
chucks and killing my knees and ankles. And I was like, this stinks. I'm going to do damage. So I went out and got running shoes, real ones. They were ugly because they offered the right kind of support, not the cool looking kind. And so, uh, especially for a flat footed guy like me. So I started running and I still hated it. And it was winter. And I thought, okay, all I'm going to do is wake up early in the morning. Cause I could, you know, time was the excuse. So I can't, I got to study. It's one o'clock now. It's two X, Y, Z. So I started to get up in the morning put my running shoes and running gear on and then walk outside. And if I wanted to get up and go back to bed, I, I would allow myself to do that. I think I did mm-hmm. that like one time going back to bed. Every other time I was like, I'm outside, it's cold, I'm in my running gear, I'm going to go run. I, how ridiculous did I feel going back to bed that one time? Yep, so, that's huge. I refer to that as the, uh, I wrote an article on some very similar called the two-minute rule. And so it came, originally this is from like David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. So it's like a productivity hack that, if something takes less than two minutes, then do it now. So, you know, doing the dishes or the laundry or taking the trash out or whatever. It's like sending that email that you've been delaying on or calling someone back. It takes less than two minutes. Just do it right now. Well, I think you can do the same thing or something similar for building new habits. And it's exactly what you mentioned there. It's like for most habits, you're not going to be able to finish them in just two minutes, but you can start pretty much anything in less than two minutes. And so for the running example, Maybe you get home from work and you're supposed to run three miles and you don't feel like it. Well, the new habit could be, all right, put my shoes on and step out the front door. And once you've done that, you've succeeded. You did something in less than two minutes. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. But there's, as you said, this inertia that comes with starting something that once you get out the door with your shoes on, it's like, well, might as well put my feet in front of the other and run. Exactly. You're already there. Precisely. Now, you met Richard Branson on a totally unrelated topic, or one of the things I thought interesting that you'd mentioned was that he was speaking with a bunch of other folks and he turned out to be the most simplistic person out of all these entrepreneurs giving advice, telling people what to do. He really had a very simple philosophy. I'd obviously like to hear about that because he's done many things right at this point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was actually, it was a really cool trip. I was uh, I was in Russia. I went to a conference in Moscow with this group of entrepreneurs and Branson came and spoke to us and um, he was really genuine too and authentic. I thought he, you know, a lot of times like you think they might have really canned responses or whatever. It seemed like he was right. being legit, but he's speaking on this panel and two things happened. So one, he's on this panel with all these other experts or brilliant minds or whatever, people from Harvard, wherever they're talking like real uppity and I don't know, just trying to prove how smart they are and they are brilliant, but it's just like, you know, too much. Exhausting. Then, yeah. Yeah. So Branson though is super, you know, down to earth. At one point, like people were asking about like what we could or couldn't do. And he was like, why can't we like mine asteroids and get raw materials off of them? It's just like, I don't know. He's just totally out there and simple, but when I looked at the panel, he's the only one of all these brilliant, smart people who's a billionaire. And so I was like, well, what is the difference between him and how he approaches life and does things compared to other people? And he told this story that I thought encapsulated it pretty well. So he said it was real early on in his entrepreneurial career. He was like, I don't know, early 20s. And so he didn't have a whole lot of money yet. He was an entrepreneur, but nobody really knew who he was or anything. And he's on this flight in the Caribbean and he's trying to go from one island to the other and even said, he's like, I had a, a girl waiting for me. So I like really wanted to get there that night. The plane was canceled for, I don't know, like a maintenance reason or something. So he started calling around to see if he could charter a private plane to get over to the other island. <laughs> and so he chartered one and he was like, I didn't really have the money to do it at the time, but I went ahead and booked it. And this was like in the seventies. So he picked up like this little chalkboard from the airport and wrote, 
Virgin Airlines, $29 on Amazing. it. Amazing. Walked over to the group who just had their flight canceled with them and then sold off the rest of the seats on the chartered plane and used their money to pay for the rest of the plane. Sure. Yeah, because it was probably a $15, $20 flight to hop the island. He's like, listen, you want to sit here all night or do you want to go? Yeah, exactly. And so they all paid him their 29 bucks, and then he sold off the remaining, I don't know, 12 seats or whatever fit on that charter plane and then used that money to, to buy it. And so how many of us have had a flight canceled? You're like everyone. And he's the only one who decided to do something about it and take action. And that, I think, encapsulates the difference between him and a lot of other people is that he's willing to start before he feels ready. And, you know, he didn't know anything about planes. He had no engineering experience. There was no reason that he was more qualified to do this than anyone else. And this is true of many of his business ventures or his around the world trips and all this other stuff he's done. It's not like he's more qualified. He just chooses to face the uncertainty and still get started. And I think that that has been a useful metric for me to keep in mind or useful um, idea to for me to keep in mind as I move forward as an entrepreneur. It's like travel and everyday life and learning to embrace that level of uncertainty and realize that you can figure it out anyway. Absolutely. It's one of the things that we teach at The Art of Charm as well. Just no excuses. Get out here. Handle it. You know, a lot of guys are rationalizing or complaining like, oh, I'm preparing. I'm listening to a lot of the shows and I'm reading a lot of the stuff that you guys write. And it's like people who are generally unsuccessful have a habit of always looking for something to substitute for action. I've noticed that just looking at so many guys who come into AOC who are successful, especially the ones that take forever to do it and come in and they're always like, I just looked for all kinds of things to do instead of biting the bullet and coming out. And looking at a lot of the cool experiences I've had, like going to the Gaza Strip and stuff like that back in the day and like traveling in these really strange exotic places and ending up in like Bosnia and stuff like that are always the result of, okay, I don't really know what's gonna happen, but I know that I have the trust in myself to be able to handle it. And a lot of that comes from self-trust, confidence, self-confidence, things like that. So I understand why some people don't do it, but of course, there's no coincidence that there's a strong correlation between self-confidence and success. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, when you're working on something that's important to you, or you're working towards a goal or a habit that's important to you, it's natural to feel uncertain or unprepared or unqualified because you wanna do it right. But the problem is when, planning becomes a form of procrastination when like the research becomes a reason to delay and wait and on and on and on. And that's when you need to decide to like face something and, and make a decision because you're never going to have all the answers. So like embracing that uncertainty and choosing to move on is the best decision. Definitely. Well, excellent. Now we have a personal motto that I think is really awesome. Successful people start before they're ready. That just goes right along with what we were saying, right? Yeah, honestly, it was through that Branson experience that I first stumbled upon that and started to think that way. And I feel like there are different phases of things like in the beginning, starting and usually with with a habit or a goal or whatever you're working on, starting is often the hardest part. I mean, that comes back to the running example that you gave, like once you got your shoes on and got off the door, the rest of it just sort of flowed. And then the other piece is consistency and learning to start over and over and over again. So in the beginning, you have to start when you don't feel ready. And then after that, you have to learn to start like when you feel bored because you've done it so many times, but realizing that the consistency is what's going to take you through to the ultimate result and outcome that you want. Yeah, I mean, we all start in the same place with no money, no resources, no contacts, no experience. The winners choose to start anyway. And not to generalize about people's experiences, but for the most part, nobody's experienced in the beginning. Nobody has, unless you're Bill Gates's son or something, like, you know, you know, you don't have all the resources in the world at your fingertips. So 
understanding that lack of preparation is normal is kind of key for setting your mindset to move forward. We talk a lot about failure because successful people fail a lot as well, but the way that they treat failure is completely different. And I've noticed this, especially I've made the shift in myself, but I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends will struggle with this. And a lot of people ask me about what made you less afraid of failure or what gave you the courage to make the leap from nine to five to entrepreneur. Treating failure like a scientist was huge. I never thought about it in that way, but it absolutely is. Failure absolutely is the cost you pay to be right later. That's probably the most useful. That last phrase is the most useful thing for me that came out of this article I wrote about treating failure like a scientist is that being wrong is the cost you pay on the way to being right. I think that's paraphrasing Seth Godin in some way. But I have this friend, Beck, who she worked at a science museum for a while. And she was telling me, she's like, I'm not a science person, but I learned something really interesting while I was there. And that was about how scientists choose to treat failure. And scientists, when they run an experiment, there are like all sorts of things that could happen. Some of the results are what they expected. Some are what they didn't expect. But whether it's a success or a failure, every result is just a data point. And they use that piece of data to ultimately lead them to an answer. So in many ways, failure is actually celebrated by a scientist because it helps guide them towards the right fit or the right answer. And choosing to see failure like that is much different than how our society at least talks about failure often. Usually if you fail, it's like an assessment of who you are as a person, or, you know, if you don't get in shape, then you're undesirable. Or if you fail in business, then you don't have what it takes to, you know, to make it work. If you fail at uh, being like a good artist, then you're not creative. There are all these examples. So rather than seeing failure as like an indication of your identity, just see it as a data point. So treat failure like a scientist and then use that data point to guide you towards the next step. Yeah, I think that's a really important mindset shift because otherwise the fear of failure will stop you from action. As we just discussed, action is key. A lot of guys have this as well, especially when they're talking about dating and interactions with the opposite sex. Instead of a data point, which is a great way to think about it because it doesn't affect you personally, guys are like, well, if she doesn't like me, somehow that means something about me. And that stops a lot of guys from ever trying in the first place. I think that's a perfect example of this philosophy because it's so easy to take that stuff personally and see it as like an assessment of who you are or I don't know how valued you are in society, all these things. But really, it's just it's just a data point. Right, exactly. And it really does affect us only in a, a certain few areas. There's other areas where this would rarely affect us. For example, if you and I went to the gym and I was like, cool, show me your workout. And then like I puked or something like that. You wouldn't be like, what a loser. You'd be like, okay, well, it's his first time doing this crazy workout. You'd say, maybe I need to scale it back. And I would say to myself, I probably need to scale it back a little bit. Whereas if we both decided to go talk to the same girl, I succeeded or failed and you succeeded or failed. One of us succeeded, the other failed. We would probably have awkward eye contact for like the rest of the day because our egos are attached to it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you go to a restaurant and you order a meal and it's terrible, it's not like you feel like, oh, wow, I'm a terrible eater, you know, or like <laughs> yeah. some assessment of like how good or bad you are. It's just like, all right, well, I'm not going to order that again because that's what the data point tells <laughs> my, me. My taste buds are defective. This yeah, sucks. It's, seeing that in other areas of life and realizing that I think is it's hard. You know, it's not easy. I mean, if you're really invested in something, of course you want to succeed. That's the caveat of all this. Like it's easy to talk about the failure piece, but when you actually fail, it sucks. So I realize that it's tough, but learning to to do that. And the more that you do it, the easier it is to embrace. Yeah, it's all about reducing outcome dependence, which is really tricky. And the way to do that is to have abundance in that area. For example, if you're running a business 
and you're like, if this business idea fails, I'm homeless, my wife's going to leave me, and my kids are going to be hungry, there's a lot of pressure on that outcome. But that's why I always advise younger guys to start a business before they have any experience, speaking of start before you're ready. Because if you fail, no one's going to be like, you've ruined your family's life. They're going to be like, dude, you're 25. Pick your, you know, quit crying, brush your shit off and get back to work. Start over again. Yeah. Well, and this is as far as business advice goes, one of the best pieces of advice that I got in the first like year of being an entrepreneur was to try things until something comes easily. And so when you look, start looking at it that way, it's like, all right, I'll try 10 different business ideas and then one of them will be better or come more easily than the others. And so then I'll run with that rather than worrying about like the nine failures. If you pin like everything that you're about on whether this one idea that you have is going to be a success or a failure, it's really easy to be disappointed and get down on yourself about that. Yeah, absolutely. The more dependent you are on the outcome, the more difficult failure will be. Absolutely. Mm. One of the things that I've been big on lately, and people are constantly amazed by this, uh, I haven't had a TV since the 90s with cable or anything like that. And that was an accident. I wasn't like some hippie or something. I just didn't have time. Then I moved to another country where I couldn't understand what the hell was on TV. And then another one, another one, another one. Went to college, didn't have time again. And then after that was just like, I'm not even interested in this anymore. But mm. one of the things I realized was my thinking became a little bit different. And I read about something called the low information diet that I think it was like Tim Ferriss and other people were starting to experiment with. And I was like, I think I do that because I don't read the news. I don't care about it. And people used to be like, you don't know about this. And I used to feel bad about it. But then I realized not knowing about Britney Spears, for one thing, it has no reflection on my personal value. And two, I was saving hours a week. I mean, my girlfriend at the time, she used to spend like 40 minutes a day of reading. I don't know what it was at the time, Gawker or whatever. And it was just such a complete waste of effort, energy, attention, everything. And I realized that you do this too. There's a lot of information that's bad for us. I didn't even think about this. I just thought I was saving time, but there's actually information that's bad for us. And it's like junk food and it's things that are outside our control. It's counterintuitive, right? Because some of these are big events like war and Syria and, you know, oil embargoes and the rise of China, right? It's like all these things that theoretically we shouldn't be ignoring, but we can't do anything about it alone. So we don't need to focus on it every day and like wake up to it. And I think it affects people negatively. What do you think? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, let's get back to the good stuff. Yeah, so I wrote an article about this low quality information, overdosing on it. I was surprised by all the feedback that I got. And I, similar to you, I have a television now, but for a long time I didn't. And, you know, I pretty much never watched like the nightly news or the idea, the basic idea, the core idea of all this is that if something isn't benefiting you, then eliminate it from your life because you're going to be spending that time on something that is benefiting you or something that is more important or valuable to you. So, you know, for some people, like, keeping up on the latest happenings in Syria really benefits them because then they, you know, make a decision about donating to the cause or something like that. Yeah. But if we're being honest, for like 98% of people, most of the news stories that you read have very little valuable impact on your life. I think this is especially true with like the local news, you know, like whether or not the cow got loose in the zoo 
or there's another rape or murder in the bad part of town. I don't need to know about that. It doesn't affect me in any valuable way. And more importantly, it doesn't help me do anything valuable for the world or the people that I care about. If it's not changing my actions in some way, then like, why am I wasting time on it? And I think for most of us, at least this was the answer for me. It was like, my parents always watch the news. So I watch the news. Sure. Like that's the only reason that you're making that decision. But when you step back and look at it, it's like, this isn't actually benefiting me. And what you mentioned about the circles of concern versus circles of control. I think this is an idea originally from the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. But yeah. The basic idea is there's all these things in life that you have no control over, but for some reason, most people are concerned about, like the sex lies of celebrities and politicians, yeah. the political views of other people. You have no control over that. Like people freak out about that stuff. The weather, um, what war is happening in some random part of the world, what other people think about you, the economy, and you know, is the economy up or down, all this stuff. For some reason, people spend an incredible amount of time concerned about these issues, even though they have very little or even no control over them. And what I think is better, and one reason why I advocate for not wasting your time on all this low quality information is so that you can shrink that circle of concern and expand your circle of control to like the choices that you make on a daily basis, where you live, where you choose to work, items that you choose to buy, what you eat for lunch every day, places you travel to, articles that you write or books that you read, organizations that you volunteer for, your general level of enthusiasm or the attitude that you bring to life each day. These are things that you actually control. So why don't we spend our time more focused on that rather than wasting time concerned about all these issues that we have very little control over? Now, earlier in the show, we talked a little bit about building habits and feedback loops and stuff like that. And one of the things I really took from your blog recently as well is every time you tell yourself can't you create this feedback loop that reminds you of your limitations. I'm a language guy, I love that stuff. I do think that language and the language you use reflects a system of beliefs. I don't know if the language itself affects you directly, but I think the language that you choose is reflective of a system of beliefs and we can start to rewire a little bit of it by changing the way that we say things. So you definitely have drilled home that saying can't or don't are two totally different things one being much better than the other. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, first, I like your distinction about like the language is an indication of what we believe about ourselves, not that the words are like magic themselves. Because I think sometimes people are like, oh, if I just say this phrase, then it's like this magic phrase and it'll work. And it's not that at all. The interesting thing and the thing that I wrote an article about is this research study that took two groups. And in the first group, they told them, hey, we're going to give you a temptation like ice cream. And when we do that, we want you to say, I can't have that. So like, I can't eat ice cream. And then with the second group, they were going to give them a temptation, but they said, we want you to say, I don't do that. So like, I don't eat ice cream. And so they had them both do this. And then they had them go through this questionnaire that was like unrelated to the study. And then when they walked out of the room, they offered them either a chocolate bar or like a healthy granola bar. And so they marked down like the choices that people made and the people that said, I can't, they chose the chocolate or the unhealthy option 61% of the time, I think. And then the people who chose the healthy option or said, I don't, they only chose the chocolate bar 36% of the time. So it was like double the odds that you would make an unhealthy choice if you said can't rather than don't. And the lesson here, and they did a bunch of other studies about whether or not people who said can't would work out less than people who said don't. They did. People who said can't like worked out 10% of the time, whereas people who said don't, like I don't miss workouts would work out like 80% of the time. So there were all these different studies. 
But the basic idea is that can't is a very like limiting phrase, like, oh, I'm restricted, I'm sacrificing, I can't do that because my diet says so, or I can't do that because my partner tells me I shouldn't, or whatever it is. Whereas don't is a very empowering phrase. You're taking a stand, I believe in this, this is something I'm choosing not to do, I'm in control of my life, I have confidence in myself, I believe in myself. The self-talk that we use can shape the things that we believe about ourselves, the way that we approach life in general. And so using more empowering phrases for self-talk makes it easier to stick to things for the long term and more likely that saying no is something that you'll actually stick to when it comes to a temptation. Right. So basically we have to make a choice between being the architect of our words or the victim of our words. Exactly. That's the difference is like, are you going to play the victim role and be like, oh, this stuff is happening to me? Or are you going to be a more empowered, confident person and say, I'm the architect of my life. I'm designing the way that I'm choosing to do things and the choices that I make each day. Excellent. Now, last but not least, you have a really good exercise here that I love, which is reducing the scope and sticking to the schedule. I talk a lot about this on the show and eliminating things like half work. We are just kind of like cycling through Twitter, Facebook, email, and little tiny projects. We talk about eating the frog. Uh, there's a book called that. I can't remember who wrote it. I think it's probably the get shit done guy as well. But if you do the most important thing every day, first thing, you'll always have done something important that day, which is brilliant. To your larger point, you advocate sticking to a schedule and building a habit versus, say, scrapping the whole idea of working out if you run out of time. Let's fill that in a little bit because this is something, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's me every day. Yeah, so this gets at a larger issue about habits, which is that a lot of people say they want to do something like, hey, I would like to build a writing habit each day or, hey, I would like to you know, go to the gym or whatever it is. And they pick this habit or this goal that they have for themselves, but they never give it a time and a space to live in their life. So when they wake up each day, they're hoping, oh, man, I hope I feel motivated to do this today or I hope I have enough willpower to stick with this like even when I'm drained and I get done with work at the end of the day. The nice thing about setting a schedule for yourself is that it helps remove some of that decision making and it helps remove some of that need for motivation because you're not wondering when am I going to write or when am I going to work out or when am I going to do whatever the goal is. The downfall or the hard part about this is that you can set a schedule for yourself, but maybe you do it once or twice, but the consistency is the hard part. So for me, what I have found in a little framework I use to make it easier to stick to a schedule over the long term is reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. And I'll give you a couple examples of how I do this. So today I'm fighting a little bit of cold. I don't feel that great. It's been a really busy week, but my schedule is to work out today. So when I went to the gym, I just squatted. That was the only thing I did. I went in, I did squats. I left. It took about 30 minutes and that was it. So that's not as long as like my typical hour and a half workout. So I reduced the scope, but I still found a way to stick to the schedule. Same way with my writing. I publish articles every Monday and Thursday. And on average, that means I publish about eight or nine articles a month. And I know that if I write eight or nine, then two or three of them will be good. I can't predict which two or three it'll be, but I know that sticking to that schedule is the most important thing. Well, last week I was helping facilitate this week-long retreat. And so my schedule was booked from like 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So I didn't really have much time to write. Rather than saying, oh, that's all right, I'll just, you know, get back to it next week or something, I found a way to deliver two short posts, which aren't nearly as like comprehensive. Usually I back up a lot of my articles with research studies and or like a good story about personal experience. So it wasn't as great as I wanted it to be. But I realized that the value of never missing is the most important thing because I proved to myself, all right, the circumstances weren't optimal. 
the situation wasn't ideal, but I still found a way to stick to something that's important to me. And I think that's the lesson of reduce the scope and stick to the schedule. On an individual basis, it doesn't make that big of a difference, but the cumulative impact of always sticking to the things that you say are important to you is huge. Yes, that is definitely the case. People are always amazed. How did you start a show and release it regularly for seven years? And the answer is I didn't. I screwed up a lot. More recently, I've been on a really strict release schedule. I do it whether it's Christmas, whether I'm sick as hell. Even when I'm in North Korea, I automate things to go by themselves because there's no internet. I see a lot of new podcasters not doing that. And I'm thinking, that is the worst mistake you can make. And it's so avoidable. Like, what's your excuse? I was in the only country in the world with literally no internet and I still got a show out. Yeah. And I think the other important piece about that is that if you have a schedule for yourself, when you do mess up, this is like another really critical thing is getting rid of this all or nothing mentality that like, if I happen to miss once, yes. then I failed. And so now it go completely off the rails and it takes me like three months to get back on track. Um, instead, plan for failure and realize that that's going to be a part of the process. But having that schedule is really useful. So like, if I were to miss my workout today, I know that when next Monday rolls around, I already have it on the schedule. Like this is when I'm going to be showing up. So I don't have to wonder like, hey, when am I going to get back on track? So that's useful as well. Excellent. Thanks so much, James Clear at jamesclear.com. You'd mentioned you wanted to throw together a resources page. Do you still want to do that? Yeah, absolutely. We've covered a lot of ground. Some of the stuff I love to dive into more and I have, you know, more extensive articles on techniques and everything. So to make it easy on everybody, I went ahead and put together a page with all those resources, links to the articles we mentioned, more in-depth stuff, books, if you want to take a look at that. You can get all of that at jamesclear.com slash AOC for Art of Charm. So jamesclear.com slash AOC. Okay, cool. And we'll link to that in our show notes as well. So if guys for some reason, can't make it to your website because it's too far. They can go to ours instead and click on through. Thanks so much, James. Much appreciated. All right, cool, buddy. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. After I recorded the show with James Clear, I really found a cool article that I liked on his blog, so I decided I'm just going to read it into the microphone for your listening enjoyment. It's called The Difference Between Professionals and Amateurs. I've started to notice, partially because of my own failures, that there is one skill that is so valuable it'll make you a standout in any area of your life, no matter what kind of competition you face. What is this skill and how can you develop it? Let's talk about that now. Every day at 8 a.m. Last summer, I was speaking with Todd Henry. Todd is a successful author and does a great job of putting out valuable work on a consistent basis. I, on the other hand, do a remarkable job of putting out questionable work on an inconsistent basis. I started to explain this to Todd. Todd, what do you think about writing only when you feel motivated? I feel like I always do my best work when I get a spark of creativity or inspiration, but that only happens every now and then. I'm pretty much only writing when I feel like it, which means I'm inconsistent. But if I write all the time, then I'm not creating my best work. That's cool, Todd replied. I only write when I'm motivated too. I just happen to be motivated every day at 8 a.m. The difference between professionals and amateurs. It doesn't matter what you're trying to become better at. If you only do the work when you're motivated, you'll never be consistent enough to become a professional. The ability to show up every day, stick to the schedule, and do the work, especially when you don't feel like it, is so valuable that it is literally all you need to become better 99% of the time. I've seen this in my own experiences. When I don't miss workouts, I get in the best shape of my life. When I write every week, I become a better writer. When I travel and take my camera out every day, I take better photos. It's simple and powerful, but why is it so difficult? 
the pain of being a pro. Approaching your goals, whatever they are, with the attitude of a professional isn't easy. In fact, being a pro is painful. The simple fact of the matter is, most of the time we are inconsistent. We have goals that we would like to achieve and dreams that we would like to fulfill, but we only work towards them occasionally, when we feel inspired or motivated or when life allows us to do so. It's just easier that way. I can guarantee that if you set a schedule for any task and start sticking to it, there will be days when you feel like quitting. When you start a business, there will be days when you don't feel like showing up. When you're at the gym, there will be sets you don't feel like finishing. When it's time to write, there will be reports that you don't feel like typing. But stepping up when it's annoying or painful or draining to do so, that's what makes you a pro. Professionals stick to the schedule. Amateurs let life get in the way. Professionals know what's important to them and work towards it with purpose. Amateurs get pulled off course by the urgencies of life. You'll never regret starting important work. Some people might think I'm promoting the benefits of being a workaholic. Professionals work harder than everyone else and that's why they're great. Actually, that's not it at all. Being a pro is about having the discipline to commit to what is important to you instead of merely saying something is important to you. It's about starting when you feel like stopping, not because you wanna work more, but because your goal is important enough to you that you don't wanna simply work on it when it's convenient. Becoming a pro is about making your priorities a reality. There have been a lot of sets I haven't felt like finishing, but I've never regretted doing the workout. There have been a lot of articles I didn't feel like writing, but I've never regretted publishing on schedule. There have been a lot of days I felt like relaxing, but I've never regretted showing up and working on something that is important to me. Becoming a pro doesn't mean you're a workaholic. It means you're good at making time for what matters to you, especially when you don't feel like it, instead of playing the role of the victim and letting life happen to you. How to become a pro. Going about your work like a pro isn't easy, but it's also not as complicated or difficult as you might think. There are three steps. One, decide what you want to be good at. Purpose is everything. If you know what you want, then getting it is much easier. This sounds simple, but in my experience, even people who are smart, creative, and talented rarely know exactly what they're working for and why. Two, set a schedule for your actions. Once you know what you want, set a schedule for actually doing it. Note, don't make the same mistake I've made, which is setting a schedule based on results. Don't map out how much weight you wanna lose each week or how much money you wanna make. Lose five pounds is not an action you can perform. Do three sets of squats is an action you can perform. You wanna set a schedule based on actions you can do, not on results that you want. Three, stick to your schedule for one week. Stop thinking about how hard it will be to follow a schedule for a month or a year. Just follow it for a week. For the next seven days, do not let distractions get in the way. Setting a schedule doesn't make you a professional. Following it does. Don't be a writer, be writing. Don't be a lifter, be lifting. For one week, do the things you wanna do without letting life get in the way. Next week, start again. What this looks like in the real world. Here are two examples of how I'm trying to go about my day as a professional right now. Feel free to try either of these strategies if you're looking to become better at working like a pro. Push-ups. I'm currently working towards doing 100 strict push-ups in a row. When I started in August, I could only do 36 in a row. My schedule is to do push-ups every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and except for a short span while I was traveling in Russia and Turkey, I haven't missed a workout in five months. Writing. As I mentioned in the beginning of the post, I've struggled with keeping a consistent writing schedule in the past, but now I've got one that is working and I plan on sticking to it. The schedule is simple. Publish one new article every Monday and Thursday on this site. I've followed that schedule for eight weeks now. It's just a start, but I'm working on becoming a pro. You are not alone. 
Everyone's journey is their own, but you don't have to face the pain of becoming a pro all by yourself. Leave a comment below and tell me, what areas of your life do you want to become a professional in? What's important to you? This website is the home to a small community of committed people who are looking to become stronger and healthier, more creative and more skilled, and better friends and better family members. We're all looking to improve, and I'd love to help you however I can. And if I can't do much, then perhaps another member of our community can. That's James Clear, jamesclear.com. Have a great week. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Boot camp details for our live programs also at theartofcharm.com, and that's where you're going to find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media as well. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's really it. And you guys can help us. Subscribe in iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Write something nice and we will love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.